earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part seven in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. If you've missed any parts, the podcasts are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Remember, our journey through the book of Acts is thematic, tracing the lives of Jesus' apostles and disciples and the resurrection power they demonstrate, and also spotlighting the power and action of the Holy Spirit. Today's title is The Terror from Tarsus, A Transformation Story. One that mimics the change from a caterpillar to a butterfly, so to speak. We might even call this transformation from Saul to Paul. Today we're in Acts 9. But let me first share a prince and fair maiden story. Yes, friends, another prince fair maiden story. It so happens that a prince's enemies captured his fair maiden and held her captive in a high tower. But the prince had a rescue plan, recruiting two insects who were to deliver a special message to his maiden. First, there was Claude Caterpillar. Claude was a nice guy and didn't mind helping a maiden in distress. But Claude was also a crusty old guy. He often acted like he got up on the wrong side of the bed. But the prince gave Claude a special message to deliver, so Claude inched towards the tower working hard and sweating along the way. As he crawled, Claude thought, Look at that! The sun's out today! But all of a sudden, clouds moved in, and it rained. Claude mumbled, Rain! I just had this suit cleaned! But Claude wasn't a quitter. He persevered all the way to the tower and searched for a way up. He saw a vine growing up one side, and voila! Up he went! Inch by inch he slithered up the vine, but discovered it was a climbing rose bush. Ouch! he moaned all the way up the vine. He finally reached the window and heaved himself onto the ledge and blurted out, Hey, lady, come here. Are you the maiden in distress? She nodded yes and looked down at the sweaty, muddy caterpillar. Claude looked up, gave her the once-over, and yelled, "'You're kidding me! I crawled all this way for the likes of you? What does the prince see in you? But he gave me a message for you, so here it is. Get ready. He's coming to get you. Five o'clock sharp. Understand? All right. Goodbye.' Claude hopped off the ledge and went back down the vine. "'Remember, friends, the prince also sent Barney Butterfly, but with the rain and wind he wasn't sure he'd make it.' But he told the prince he'd do his best, so he was off. He struggled. The wind blew him back and forth the whole time. 
Near the tower, a bird swooped down and nearly ate him alive, but Barney escaped and flew through the window. He flitted around until the maiden noticed him. She reached out her hand and Barney landed softly on her finger. She brought him in close and he relayed the prince's message. Lovely and favored maiden, the prince loves you dearly. When you hear his voice, jump down into his arms. The happy maiden replied, Thank you, beautiful and sweet butterfly. But pray tell, why did that caterpillar bring this news in such a nasty and rude manner? Barney replied, Oh, you mean Claude? That's Claude. I used to be just like that until I was transformed. Transformation, friends, is precisely what the Christian life is all about. It's a spiritual metamorphosis, and it's best explained by Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, there's our word, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." One modern language Bible has for verse 2, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. You'll be changed from the inside out. That certainly describes transformation, doesn't it, friends? How many of us can testify that we've undergone a spiritual metamorphosis, so to speak, that we can trace back to the power of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit acting or working in our lives? It's no coincidence, friends, that Paul urged his listeners to experience a spiritual metamorphosis, just like a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. Perhaps some of you listening are from the boomer generation like me, or you simply enjoy classic Christian rock and roll songs. Remember Barry Maguire? His claim to fame in the 1960s was the song Eve of Destruction, but he was transformed by Christ and his Christian music became popular in the 70s, especially the song Bullfrogs and Butterflies, the leading phrase being Bullfrogs and butterflies, they both been born again. Well, friends, the former Claude, a man named Saul, became Barney. Paul, a rude, rough, and nasty Saul, was transformed, undergoing a spiritual metamorphosis, and later became known as the Apostle Paul. This radical spiritual transformation is carefully chronicled by Luke in the book of Acts, and the chronicles of Saul turned Paul are in Acts 9, the chapter we're up to in our thematic journey through Acts. But friends, before we scour Acts 9, I gotta tell you, skeptics and critics of the Bible have advanced some theories to explain away the Apostle Paul's transformation. One theory claims he was hallucinating. Another claims Paul had an epileptic seizure. One skeptic attempted to foist this epilepsy theory on Dr. Joseph Parker. Parker just snapped back with, 
Fly abroad, you mighty epilepsy! A third theory, friends, is the lightning theory. Dr. John A. Bullock, an ophthalmologist, proposed that Saul's blindness was caused by being struck by lightning. Bullock even wrote and delivered a paper on his theory at an American Academy of Ophthalmology and Otolincology convention. He argued that the light from heaven recorded in Acts 9 was a bolt of lightning that struck the corner of Saul's eye, causing scar tissue to obstruct his vision. Well, friends, let's consult what we're confident is the inspired record of what happened to Saul on that fateful trip on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, 1 through 31. And just an FYI, Paul tells his conversion experience two more times in Acts, in chapters 22 and 26. And none of these accounts use the lightning bolt angle. Acts 9 opens with Saul still breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples. He was so determined that he got written permission from the high priest to hunt down followers of the way in Damascus to personally escort them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this word still also means yet or even now and carries with it the idea of a continuing emotion or state of mind. So we should back up to the end of chapter 7 going into chapter 8. While they were stoning Stephen, Saul approved of their killing him. And on the day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, godly men buried Stephen. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women, and put them in prison. Now, Christ followers had some name changes along the way. Early on, as Acts 9, 1 and 2 inform us, they were called the way, or followers of the way. In Acts 24, their opponents called them the sect of the Nazarenes. It wasn't until Acts 11 in Antioch that they were called Christians, the Greek word being Christianos, meaning little Christ or adherent of Christ. Its suffix is actually borrowed from Latin and denotes adhering to or belonging to as in slave ownership. No wonder the disciples called themselves slaves of Christ. Now, friends, I may be speculating here, but verse 7 refers to men traveling with Saul. Remember, Saul was an unofficial business representing official religious Israel, breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples. Saul was traveling with extradition papers, if you will, to the synagogues in Damascus to bring Jesus' followers back to Jerusalem in chains. Verse 14 recounts Ananias' dialogue with God, fearfully telling God, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority or power from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So, friends, I propose that to bolster his authority and solidify his official business, the troop traveling with Paul might have been fellow reps of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. 
And isn't it a real twist that this story begins with Saul on a death threat mission to arrest Christ followers, but concludes with Paul's former religious cohorts seeking his death after Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus and is filling with the Holy Spirit, verse 17, we read that Saul's preaching baffles the Jews in Damascus, proving Jesus is the Messiah, verses 20 through 22. Then verses 23 and 24 say, A conspiracy arose among the Jews to kill Paul. The persecutor became the persecuted. And his newfound brothers in Messiah had to help him escape by night to flee to Jerusalem. And friends, let's not overlook the fact that our journey through Acts includes tracing the word and concept of power, right? So we owe it to ourselves to search carefully for evidence of power in chapter 9 and not just gloss over it, which would be easy because the word itself only appears once in verse 22. Yet... Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Power is embedded under the surface here, and we could easily miss it if we're not careful readers or if we don't scrutinize the scriptures we're reading. As this spiritual biography of Saul begins, we learn he's a take-charge zealot, breathing out threats. We might even say he's seething. Listen to his own testimony of his past as he recounted to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 6. As to zeal, and he really does mean as a zealot for the Jewish religion, a persecutor of the church. And tells the Galatians in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This persecution of Christ followers in Jerusalem, following the stoning of Stephen, however, backfired in the chief priests and Sanhedrin's face. It just served to spark the Messianic movement as far as Damascus, about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. By the way, the high priest was Caiaphas, the same high priest who took the leading role in the trial of Jesus, insisting he was guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. Peter and John appeared before him for preaching Jesus, and he sternly warned them not to speak or teach any more in Jesus' name. So, is it any wonder that Caiaphas would be more than happy to grant Saul official documents authorizing him to apprehend Jews who confess Jesus as their Messiah and who have fled Jerusalem for their lives? Well, friends, Saul has become a man with a mission, and his mission is backed by the power and authority of the Jewish religious leaders. But here, we witness the power of the Holy Spirit colliding with the power of the Jewish leaders. Acts 9.22 is critical here. Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This word powerful is an intensified form of our word power we've been tracing in Acts. So now, friends, Paul becomes a transformed man with a mission 
and he also becomes a man with a destination. Destination Damascus. What's so special about Damascus? First, walking 135 plus miles would take at least six full days between Sabbaths. The urgency to get to Damascus lies in the fact that it was an oasis on the edge of the Syrian desert, plus a main caravan route between Egypt and Mesopotamia, and a busy trading center. Jews traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem would pass through this city. By Jesus' time, Damascus was Roman-controlled, since Syria was a Roman province. In fact, Damascus was the principal or leading city in the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, a loose confederation of Greek cities east of the Jordan River and Sea of Galilee. A sizable Jewish population resided in Damascus, giving rise to a number of synagogues. Well, imagine, friends, how much the gospel would spread out from Damascus, now a popular trading venue, if both Jews and Gentiles accepted Jesus as Messiah and Savior of the world. We now know why Paul, in his former hatred, was so driven to get to Damascus and flaunt his authority and power. You see, friends, I believe Luke records Saul's transformation because he wants us to see that Christian transformation manifests itself in the transference of personal power. Now listen carefully, brothers and sisters. Essentially, Christianity is a power transfer. Jesus calls us to submit our personal power and authority, our controlling tendencies, if you will, to his lordship. And notice how Luke records this transformation and transfer of personal power. First, by Saul's obedience to Jesus' call in Acts 9.6. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Second, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, as verse 17 says. Recall what we've been learning? When one is filled with the Holy Spirit, one is filled with power. Acts 1.8. And third, Saul allowed the Holy Spirit's power to manifest itself in his witness to the very people he was originally planning to side with in Damascus. But when Paul began preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Messiah, the people of Damascus were astonished and remarked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Verse 21. It was even difficult for the believers to accept Paul at first. Barnabas became the go-between and brought him to the apostles to prove his conversion. In verses 26 through 28 we read, When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that how the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Friends, we have to read between the lines a little here, with the help of Israelite history from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. 
Paul's preaching indicated that he was submitted to the authority and power of Jesus Christ, his Messiah. Recall verse 20. He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Son of God, friends, must be understood in its Hebrew context, its Old Testament context. In the Hebrew scriptures, God entered into a special relationship with the anointed king of Israel, David. And God promised David that one of his descendants would be king of Israel in the future. In the future, king would enjoy a glorious and eternal reign, as well as a relationship of sonship to the father, per Second Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. Therefore, friends, for a Jew to announce that Jesus is the Son of God means proclaiming the arrival of the anointed king, the Messiah, who will reign on the throne of David. This is partially prophesied in Psalm 2. So Paul is submitted to the kingship of Jesus Christ, placing Jesus on the throne of his life. Friends, are you connecting the dots here? Saul's conversion recorded in Acts 9 has been too easily viewed as a spectacular and unique experience, and therefore its uniqueness stands out and prevents us from making a vital connection to it. This is tragic, because I believe that we can, and in fact we must make a vital connection to Saul's transformation. There is so much to learn about our faith and our walk with Jesus by studying Saul's conversion experience, and not only from Acts 9, but from his two subsequent retellings in Acts 22 and 26, which occur in different contexts. So Saul turned Paul now testifies or becomes a witness to the light, the light of Christ, who enlightened him on the Damascus road and later empowered him to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the world. Well, friends, here are three significant truths that Saul's conversion experience teaches us. First, Saul was interrupted by the light of Jesus. Jesus got Saul's attention. So let me ask, has Jesus been interrupting you and trying to get your attention? Second, Saul surrendered to the light of Jesus and in so doing submitted to Jesus' authority. The question here is, are we surrendering to the light of Jesus and becoming more conformed to his image? And are we more and more submitting to Jesus' authority? And third, Saul became a witness for the light, and the Holy Spirit became the source of Saul's power to boldly proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, in the retelling of this story in Acts 26, Paul gives us a fuller explanation of Jesus' mission call. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Let me ask again, have we been rescued from the bad influencers around us? And do we sense we're being sent to open their eyes and help turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God so they may receive forgiveness of their sins? Friends, my hope is that these questions will motivate us all to turn up the intensity of our lights that we should be shining for Jesus to the dark world around us. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback and what this program means or has meant to you. One listener wrote in in regarding Part 5, Thanks for always being right on target. Well, thank you for those encouraging words. And if a word from the Word blesses you, please join the support team. Ask me for the details. People like you keep this listener-supported program on the air. And remember, the podcasts are always accessible at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember... Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.